0: Part 2 of Two Essays on Military History, Strategy, and Tactics, Mountain Warfare, 1909, and Naval Strategy, 1917, by various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2 Mountain Warfare Action of the Advanced and Rear Guards and of Road Pickets. Speaking generally, the procedure followed by an advanced guard may be somewhat as follows both on account of consideration for its own security, and because hills will thus be more rapidly secured, it is desirable that the positions to be occupied by road pickets should, so far as it is practicable to do so from the valley, be decided some time before the main guard arrives opposite the various localities. It is also understood that Considerable latitude is allowed to the picket commander as to the position occupied, and that he is at liberty either to demand reinforcement, or to return redundant men to the advanced guard, as occasion may demand. The advanced guard may move in the following order. First, a vanguard of one or more companies preceding the remainder by about half a mile, and adapting its formation to the ground. Then the main guard, at the head of which, should be the advanced guard commander, his staff officer, the battalion commander of the unit furnishing the leading company, and the company commander. As the troops march up the valley, the advanced guard commander should decide what localities are to be held and in what strength. He should issue his orders to the battalion or company commander, as the case may be, when the pickets should move direct to their positions. Meanwhile, the staff officer should make, in sections, a rough sketch of the positions occupied by the various pickets, which should be numbered consecutively as they move out, the sections of the sketch being sent, as completed, to the officer commanding the rear guard. In addition, to ensure that no picket is overlooked by the rear-guard, a double sentry, with a paper showing the number of its picket, should be placed in the roadway beneath the height occupied, and it is the duty of the picket commander to keep in touch with this sentry-post. In this manner, the roadway should be picketed until the locality is reached where the column is to halt when the advanced guard commander should take the usual measures for the security of the camp, for safeguarding the water supply, etc. It has been suggested that an advanced guard should be divided into two portions, advanced guard and the picketing troops, each under a separate leader, the object being to free the advanced guard commander from the work of picketing so that his whole attention can be devoted to tactics. The advanced guard is to clear the hills which are then to be occupied by pickets. This system does not appear sound, for it necessitates two men doing the work of one, and in practice the advanced guard usually either meets with little or no resistance, or with such serious opposition that picketing is in abeyance. Each picket, when it reaches the position selected by its leader, should entrench, taking especial care to provide head cover so that the enemy may not be easily able to observe the moment of its final withdrawal. Before the last troops of the main column have quitted camp, the rear-guard commander should have arranged his force in a series of successive positions, calculated to enable the units to mutually support one another's retirement, as well as to assist, if necessary, the withdrawal of pickets. The guns should, for reasons already given, be kept well back, and this system of successive positions should be continued throughout the march. It is, of course understood that the main column keeps contact with and regulates its march by that of the rear guard. It is sometimes advocated that the camp pickets should, before the column marches off, be relieved by the rear guard, with the object of enabling the pickets to rejoin their units. This arrangement does not appear advantageous, The troops detailed for the relief of the pickets will probably have to move out in darkness and over an unknown area, and though if the enemy advances during the relief, he will be opposed in double strength. Should his attack be delivered later, units who do not know the ground will be placed in positions they will not be able to defend to the best advantage. Besides, the men composing the rear guard, whose functions are in any case sufficiently arduous, will be involved in additional and unnecessary fatigue. The withdrawal of pickets may be carried out on the following principles when a picket commander sees or receives reports that the rear-guard is approaching he should send the bulk of his picket to a position previously reconnoitred on the lower slope of the hill and in the direction of the line of march of the columns whence the retirement of the remainder can be covered by fire Whilst on the hill, and especially as the time for withdrawal approaches, the men of a picket should be careful not to show themselves, in order that the enemy may not, by counting heads, be able to divine that retirement has been begun. Similarly, the men left on the hill to the last should, above everything, avoid exposure. When the picket commander sees the rear-guard commander, who will usually be with the last troops, and whose presence will be shown by a flag, is opposite his post, he should give the signal for the evacuation of the hilltop, on which the men should creep back, and as soon as they are below the skyline, run down the hill to a position beyond that of their covering party the withdrawal should then be continued according to the accepted principles until the whole picket has reached the valley when its leader should report to the rear-guard commander receiving orders whether the picket is to proceed to the main column or to join the rear-guard the rearguard commander should have previously called in the road sentry post, marking the locality held by the picket, and the map furnished by the advanced guard will have been of assistance in identifying its position. It is contended that the withdrawal of a picket rests except in special circumstances entirely with the picket leader. He is the man on the spot, and can best judge when the retirement should commence. The rearguard commander should rarely attempt to regulate the actions of the pickets, of whose situation he cannot have adequate knowledge, but should exercise general supervision, ready to afford assistance if required. At times, pickets may be able to support one another's movements, but as a rule, a picket will be too fully occupied with its own affairs to be able to render assistance to its neighbors the above outline of a withdrawal presupposes that hostile pressure is not unduly severe if the enemy venture to close with the rear guard and pickets it is submitted that an immediate counterattack should be delivered the main body being halted to lose so golden an opportunity of inflicting loss on a volatile foe seems on the one hand unwise whilst on the other it is surely both undignified and demoralizing to permit savages to hunt british regulars into camp the delivery of a counter-attack is accompanied by some risk and its success will depend on the aptitude of the rearguard commander for stratagem, for if loss is to be inflicted, the enemy must, as a rule, be trapped. Simple ruses which suggest themselves are either to attempt to attract the tribesmen into the low ground by a bait of ammunition or transport animals, the cavalry, guns, and part of rearguard Infantry being previously concealed in position, from which they can take advantage of any mistake the enemy may commit, and the retirement of pickets stopped, as soon as the attack is delivered. Or two or more pickets, which have been previously reinforced by troops moving along concealed lines of advance to the hilltops, may feign retirement and attack the tribesmen as they follow over the crest line. If stratagem fails, the column should halt and drive off the enemy, a proceeding which should be repeated until he is taught that to follow up British troops is neither profitable nor advantageous. Attack and Defence success in war depends in some degree on adaptation of tactics to local conditions and it is therefore clear that to attain rapid success against the inhabitants of the northwestern frontier a knowledge of their tactics is required and that whilst the british aims are pursued with unswerving determination their probable movements must be met and defeated the tribesmen like most savages are only really formidable when one is running away from them they fight well in positions strongly fortified and with flanks secure but being without the discipline or cohesion to meet envelopment are much influenced by pressure against their flanks pathans are fearful of artillery and do not as a rule seriously resist a determined advance preferring the easier and less dangerous enterprise of harassing the retirements which they believe are an inevitable corollary to forward movements, or of attacking isolated detachments whose operations they have observed from their hilltops. They are suspicious of ambuscades, except when excited in pursuit, and are not prone to accept battle unless surprised. Like other people, they shoot well when not themselves under effective fire, and when shooting into a valley where the strike of the bullet can be observed, their fire is accurate. On the other hand, owing to their relatively defective armament and to lack of ammunition, tribal fire, as a rule, lacks volume. The tribesmen skirmish well and move quickly over their hills, but rarely, except when engaging a small force or by night, attack in mass. On the other hand, they often crowd their defensive positions with men. They are said to dislike being overlooked by their opponents, and therefore do not care to attack uphill, but will at times try to rush a detachment with the object of capturing rifles and ammunition. The fact that a proportion of the men possess only inferior firearms renders possible resort to shock tactics, especially when roused to a pitch of fanaticism. Pathans are partial to night operations, probably because they believe that there is little fear of interference after dark. Their enterprises are usually on a small scale, but night attacks in force are possible their inadequate clothing and the cold of the early morning however usually forces them to seek shelter as the night wears on from the above description it will be seen that british troops so long as they observe the ordinary principles of war have nothing to fear from the tribesmen But it is to be remembered that unless stratagem is intended, the offensive is the general rule in tribal warfare, for the enemy construes a defensive position as a sign of fear, and becomes correspondingly elated. The composition of forces dispatched on reconnaissance and minor punitive expeditions requires careful consideration columns composed of men drawn from many different infantry units are inherently weak so that in all operations complete units so far as they are required should be employed cavalry being added when local conditions are favorable Artillery will generally be necessary, as well as a proportion of technical troops, but the strength of columns should, within limits of safety, be low in order to ensure mobility and to encourage resistance. The military value of the enemy must not, however, be underestimated. The main object of all operations is to quickly attain a decisive success. To this end the tribesmen must be induced to stand and fight, with the purpose of inflicting casualties on them. It is to be remembered that the enemy can, less easily than the British, afford losses, especially of arms. Commanders, without being prodigal of their men's lives, need not, therefore, be afraid of incurring casualties, especially when there is likelihood that the enemy will suffer loss to at least an equal extent. If the tribesmen's losses are heavy, those of the British troops will probably be considerably less. Close fighting is all to the advantage of trained soldiers. As has been stated, the clansmen will rarely commit themselves to battle in conditions favourable to the British, unless they can be outwitted or surprised. Night operations may therefore frequently be necessary, having special regard to the fact that from their hilltops the enemy will overlook all maneuvers. As the natives are not often abroad in the early morning, surprise at dawn will not present unusual difficulties. The enveloping form of tactics when the enemy is attacked both in front and flank is as effective in tribal as in other warfare. But owing to the topographical advantages enjoyed by the tribesmen, it will be necessary to hold them closely in frontal attack, and so distract their attention from outflanking movements. This may be possible, for they fight with confidence when behind cover. Mere frontal attack is likely to be at once costly and ineffective. Hence, if neither envelopment nor night operations are practicable, resort must be had to such stratagems as a feigned retirement or a bait of transport animals to tempt the pathans from their hills. Though the possibility of tribal counter-attack by shock must not be lost sight of, the British advantage in training and armament should enable a central general reserve to be dispensed with, the object being to so dispose the troops as to ensure envelopment. Good information and staff work and a sound system of intercommunication will, moreover, if all ranks are imbued with the spirit of mutual support, go far to ensure success. Commanders, especially of small forces, should remember that hesitation will be quickly observed by the enemy, but a bold front and ready stratagem will soon cause him to lose heart. When a post or isolated detachment requires assistance, aid can often be most rapidly and effectively given by application of such indirect pressure as will tend to divert the enemy's attention. In minor tactics, whilst taking every advantage of the cover afforded by features of ground, troops must beware of seeking shelter in hollows or nullahs, places which will, assuredly, have been marked by the enemy's riflemen so that their occupation will rarely escape punishment. In attack, infantry units, whilst securing their flanks, should advance up salients, taking care to afford one another mutual fire assistance. Supports and local reserves should be pushed as near to the firing line as the shape of the ground will permit. But at times, reserves may be able to effectively support the troops in front by covering fire from suitable positions behind or on the flanks of the line of advance. Fire should be reserved until units have closed on the enemy, the object being to prevent the early evacuation of a position after having caused a few casualties at long range. As the enemy's fire, though likely to be accurate, will probably lack volume, resort need not be had to widely extended formations. To gain ground and when assaulting, the procedure outlined in the training manuals requires no modification. Artillery should be handled with discretion and should be on its guard against the tendency to open fire whenever a target is seen its aim should be not to evict but to hold the enemy to his sangars and to inflict loss when he retreats the steep forward slopes of hills will enable fire to be continued until the infantry has closed on the tribesmen but oblique rather than frontal fire should be employed it is of course important to ensure close intercommunication between infantry and artillery In tribal, as in other warfare, unless the enemy is completely enveloped, efficient pursuit is necessary to set the seal on victory. Pursuit can, at first, probably be best undertaken by the enveloping wings, artillery cooperating to head the enemy off in the required direction, whilst the cavalry press forward. A portion of the artillery should, therefore, move with the outflanking wings, keeping as near as possible to the firing line. Pathans, familiar with the country, and confident that they have everything to gain and but little to lose by such tactics, favor the harassing of troops as they withdraw from heights or along valleys." though it may be taken as a maxim that there will be no pursuit if the enemy has, in any recent fighting, been adequately punished, the conditions may have been such that casualties could not be inflicted. In these circumstances the clansmen must surely not be permitted to embarrass the British movements, and must be convinced that pursuit is both dangerous and unprofitable mere counter-attack when the enemy is not surprised is likely to lead to no advantage but a few skilfully laid ambushes will soon discourage his zeal for pursuit should he however persist in following up the troops counter-attack should at once be made and the retirement discontinued The enemy, it is to be remembered, will, as a rule, offer the greatest opportunity of inflicting loss when he follows up a retirement, and in such operations the aim must be rather to cause, rather than to avoid, casualties. All withdrawals should be prearranged and systematic, flanks being securely held, and the principle of mutual support observed. But formalism must be avoided and procedure must never be permitted to become so stereotyped that the enemy will be able to confidently anticipate the movements of the troops. Men must beware of entering new laws or depressions of any kind until the further edge has been secured, and when on a hilltop the provision of such cover as will conceal the headdress is of importance. Transport animals should be clear of the fighting troops before retirement is begun. If the object is to slip away from the enemy, the retirement should be made at a time when movement is not expected. When a valley is to be swept in course of punitive operations, an adequate force should be left to secure the entrance if the column is to leave by this route. Troops, as has already been suggested, should, in respect of ammunition, food, and warm coats, be independent of transport animals, and it should be understood that units are always to be prepared to remain for the night away from camp. The men should be trained to economize water, which is often scarce across the border ammunition and rifles being the main objects of tribal ambition special care should be taken to prevent them from falling into the enemy's hands against the northwest frontier clans the offensive as usual is normally the best defensive but it may sometimes happen that small british forces are temporarily obliged to act on the defensive In such circumstances, it is to be expected that the enemy will adopt the tactics common amongst savages of seeking the flanks of the troops, both to avoid fire and to obtain the advantages of enfilade. It follows, then, that defensive measures should include all round protection, whilst a relatively large reserve should be kept ready to attack the hostile levies as soon as any portion comes within charging distance. Experience tends to prove that a compact body of even a section, if well entrenched and supplied with ammunition, has nothing to fear from pathans, especially when the British leader is animated by the proper spirit of timely offensive. End of part two.